encourage you to grab your Bible and uh, turn to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, we recommend every week we have Bibles in the seat either underneath you or in front of you. encourage you to grab one of those and uh, follow along with us this morning. You can find the story we're going to be looking at on page 719 in those black Bibles underneath you there. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is the most memorable phone call you've ever received? Can you think of that? Can you think of a few? Maybe I was thinking about this question this week, and I remember one almost exactly 14 years ago to the day. At the time, Peggy and I were living in Princeton, New Jersey, and I received a call from a pastor in Springfield, Illinois, of all places. His name was Jeff Nelson. And little did Peggy and I know that that call would be the beginning of an event that would change the course of our lives, and we're glad that it did. This morning, we continue our series looking at the life of Christ, a study in the book of Luke, and we come to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's about a different kind of call. It's about the call of Levi to become a disciple of Jesus. In this story, we're going to discover something about the way of Jesus here, about the way his kingdom works, how his kingdom is different from the kingdoms of this world. And once again, if you've been a part of this series, I think you're going to be surprised at how much is packed in this little text. It's just as relevant for us today as it was for the people in that story. I'm going to break this up into two parts because the text does that for us naturally already. So let's take at this first at this first section. And to do that, I'd like you to read verses 27 and 28 out loud on your notes with me there. Can you do that? It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Believe it or not, there is a ton packed in these two small verses. Let's talk first a little bit about this person, Levi, or as we know him also in the Gospels, Matthew. Levi being his Hebrew name, Matthew being his Greek name. Levi was a tax collector for the Roman government. And if you've ever studied taxes during this time, the Romans collected their taxes through this little system called tax farming, where they assessed each district that was under their rule a certain figure that they had to come up with every year. And then different individuals could actually bid to be the person to collect the taxes for that district. So here's the idea. If you collected the quota that Rome said you needed to do, whatever else you collected, you got to keep for yourself. Now, we have to understand the taxes that the Israelites faced was heavy, nothing even compared to what we face today. We have it easy compared to them. They had to pay separate taxes for using roads, for docking in harbors, import, export taxes, sales taxes, certain taxes. I even read about a tax where you got taxed on every wheel you had on your cart if you wanted to use the roads. As you can imagine, this kind of system led to extortion. It led to corruption. A tax collector could stop anybody at any time, make him unpack his bags, and charge about anything his greedy heart desired. And here's this, catch this. If they couldn't afford the tax, guess what? The tax collector was willing to offer you a loan that you would then pay back at an exorbitant interest rate. How convenient. Because of this, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst in Israel. Not just because they were corrupt, but listen, these were Jewish people who were working with the Roman oppressors. 
Many tax collectors were actually excommunicated from their local synagogues because they were hated so much. So understand, Levi is like the lowest of the low. So with that background, I think we understand a little bit just how radical these verses are. Jesus calls this lowlife to be one of his disciples. Notice Jesus' words here. It says he saw Levi, and the Greek tense of that word suggests this wasn't like a one-time deal. He had been watching Levi, and he comes up to him and says just two words to him. What are they? Follow me. I just want you to picture this. Imagine your Matthew, your Levi, sitting at your desk, right? People are coming up to you. They're paying you something. You're working your ledger book. You're figuring out how much you're scamming off these innocent people. And this guy, this rabbi, this teacher comes to you and says, follow me. Friends, as simply as I can put it, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're following, a Christian is someone who has been called. Called from something to something else. New life in Christ always begins with a call. If you've ever read throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus is constantly calling people to him, right? Make sure we get this. He initiates it. He initiates the call. He shows up into people's lives, and he extends an invitation to them. Follow me. Some take the invitation, and others don't. Others walk away. Now, we have to be careful because none of the calls we read about in the New Testament are identical. In other words, they're not like a formula for a call. We can't make one person's call normative for everybody else's call. I think we've been a little bit guilty of this as evangelical Christians. I think in the past we said things like, well, as long as you pray this prayer, you know you've been called. No, not necessarily. That's not always how God calls a person, how Jesus calls a person to them. There's no one-size-fits-all call. However, there are similarities in every single person's call. And I want to talk about three of those similarities with you this morning first. The first similarity is that to be called is an invitation, if you're following, to follow a person, not an idea. Listen, Jesus always, always comes into a person's life and he says, follow me. He never says, follow that idea, follow that philosophy, follow this ideology, follow these whatever. He always says, follow me. I appreciate how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, let me be as frank as I possibly can. When people are investigating Christianity, I will never be very patient with this question. They'll say, well, I'm interested in Christianity, but what's the Christian view of this? Or what's the Christian view of that? What's the Christian view of marriage? What's the Christian view of doing this or doing that? I know what they're saying. They're saying I'm interested in Christianity, but I also want to be able to, I don't want to be too narrow, I want to be able to live my life a certain way. Can I go to those kinds of movies? Can I do these kinds of things? Listen, when you ask those kinds of questions, you're on the completely wrong scent. Because the Bible says always, first, 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 you have to decide who he is before anything else. You have to decide who he is before anything else. Man, do we need to hear this today. How often do we hear things like, even coming from our own lips, well, what's the Christian view on sexuality? 
What's the Christian view about this political issue or this hot topic of the day right now or you fill in the blank, whatever the issue is. You know what we're saying when we say that? We're saying, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Jesus. But first, I'm going to make sure all my ideas line up with it. In other words, I'm not going to deal with Jesus until I decide how he's going to deal with me. Do we realize how ridiculous that is? Right? Always, 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 the first question is, is Jesus who he said he is? If Jesus is who he said he is, all those other things become secondary, period. Jesus becomes the authority of my life. I choose to follow a person. Then I can figure out what the Bible teaches about this issue or that issue. But do we realize how crazy it's to say, well, I'd like to know whether I like your views on the issues first. No, no, no. Is Jesus who he says he is first? And if he is who he says he is, if he is Lord, then bring your questions to him. Nowhere in the New Testament ever do we see a person who's been called by Jesus laying out conditions to follow him. We don't have verse 28 saying, Matthew, before he decided, interviewed Jesus and said, what's your current uh, idea on the tax laws? Or what do you think about this issue? Or what do you think about that issue? No, no, no. It's follow me. Follow me. Are you going to make me the authority of your life? And they follow him. Many people do. And then everything else falls in place for their life after that, right? They still have questions. But they look to him as the answerer of those questions. Many people, though, choose not to follow him. We think of the rich young ruler, right? Jesus invited him. He called him. Come and be one of my disciples. He couldn't do it. Why? Because he knew what that meant. He knew that meant making Jesus the ultimate thing. And he wasn't yet ready to do that. But there's no in-between here. There's like, are you sure I can't still keep all my money as the rich young ruler and still follow you? No, he, he, even he understood the decision here. I either am all in and I make him the authority of my life or I'm not. And he walked away. That's the call. If the Holy Spirit is after you, and you will know if the Holy Spirit of God is after you, then you're meeting the real Jesus. You have to come to grips with the authority question in your life you got to decide who he is first, and then you can decide how you're going to relate to him. Am I going to follow him or not? After that, you can figure out what he believes about this and this and that and that and that and how you should live your life and so on and so forth. But we don't say, I'm going to come to Jesus if I like his agenda for me. No, we come to Jesus and say, if he is who he says he is, no matter what his agenda is for me, that's what I'm going to follow. That's what I'm going to do, period. Has Jesus come to you and said, follow me? Maybe today is the first time you realize that Christianity isn't about following an idea or even a religion, a spirituality, a different branch of whatever this or this is. It's about following a person. His name is Jesus. It's not about getting more religious or adopting a new set of ethics. It's coming to grips with the most important question of your life, which is who's going to be the Lord of my life? Is it going to be me, or is it going to be him? It's all or nothing. That's the call. 
And that really leads to the second characteristic or similarity of every person's call. To be called means giving complete control up of our lives. Or if you're following, we are called to leave everything. You know, that's just another word for saying repentance. When we're called by Jesus, we're called to leave the old life that we were living where we were the gods of our life. To leave that behind in order to follow him, this person, Jesus, who has called me. You know those people, have you ever had breakfast or lunch or coffee uh, with those certain group of people? Maybe you're even married to one of them. And they always have one of these little things on their belt right about here. And you could be in the middle of a conversation with one of these certain kinds of people. And all of a sudden this little thing on their belt starts to buzz. And they have to pull this thing off on their belt and they have to look at it. And then they have to excuse themselves from the great conversation you're having with them. And they have to go make a phone call. And oftentimes they then have to leave. What are those people called? Who are these poor people that are on beck and call? They're doctors, right? If you're on call as a doctor, you can't do what you want. You don't have control over your schedule and your time. And the Bible says, look at every Christian is like that. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus gets very clear what it's going to mean to follow him. You ready to follow me? You ready to follow the person of Jesus? Well, here we go. We're going to talk about many of these instances in the Gospel of Luke, but here's one of the most famous ones in Matthew. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. To be called means I'm no longer in control of my life. I've got that pager on 24-7. I have stopped running my life the way I want to, and I'm going to live it how he wants me to live it. Matthew, he got up, and he knew what that meant. He left everything behind to follow this person, and his whole life changed. And that's really the third characteristic of every person's call. Being called results in radical life change. Radical life change. Listen, there are many people who come to church and say, well, I've gone to church my whole life. So, of course, I've been called. No, no, no. You're called when you see change take place in your life. As the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding, even though none of us know what that actually means. We know what it means, right? Here's how you know you've been called. When you sense inside of you that this person, Jesus, is the most important thing. That your relationship with him, and yes, I'm going to use the word relationship, right? It's Because it's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's a relationship with a person. When that relationship with Jesus becomes the ultimate thing, that's when you know you've been called. Everything else comes second to that for you. When that's really taking place, our lives will begin to change. Yes, our decisions will be different. Our choices will be different. The way we do marriage will be different. The way we raise our kids are going to be different. Everything's going to change. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.6. He says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. What is that saying? It's saying when we've really understood the gospel, the invitation to follow this person, 
there will be fruit that results in our lives. I'm not talking about religion right now. Religion says, well, I understand Christianity, so now I just have to work harder to prove it. Just get a little dirtier. Work a little harder. Try a little harder. No, 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 no. That's not what Colossians is saying there, is it? It's saying the more you recognize who this person is, the more time you spend with him, the more fruit is going to naturally develop in your life. An apple tree doesn't say, I'm going to try really hard to bear fruit this season. He digs its roots down. It gets nourished from the soil. And in the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. I mean, how great is that? Our only job is to spend time with him. And as we spend more and more time with him, as we make him the ultimate thing in our life, we will begin to see change. We'll begin to see fruit. My decisions will be different. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear much fruit. Friends, a real Christian is someone who has been called. Right? What does that mean? It means we're following a person, not an idea, and that person becomes the authority of my life. It means I've left everything. I've left all these other things I thought were the right way. I thought the way I lived my life was the right way. I've left all that behind, and I'm going after him. And as I do that, I begin to see change and fruit in my life. It's invitation. It's his invitation to Levi. Two simple words. Follow me. It's still his invitation to us today. Follow me. Verse 29, we read, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. He gets it. Being called by Jesus results in total and complete obedience. He gives up control of his life completely. I got to make you understand here, this is a pretty big deal for him because he's pretty wealthy. We don't want to just say, oh, well, he was this. No, 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 listen. He had to give up a life of leisure and comfort and luxury. But he decided that following this person was worth more than all of that. And for a person who has really been called, isn't that true? Isn't it true that Jesus is the pearl of great price or the treasure buried in the field worth selling everything for? It doesn't mean that the Christian life is all gumdrops and roses. There are difficulties, there are challenges, but every person who has been called by Jesus, I guarantee you if I stood you up on the stage right now, you could look everybody in the eye and say, It's so worth it. Do you think Levi ever regretted the decision he made to get up, leave everything, and follow this person, Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I love what happens next in this story. I said it kind of breaks itself down into two natural sections. We get into the second section here. Look at verse 29. It says, so he makes this decision. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Levi loses no time. He calls his friends together and throws a great party. And by the way, that gives us some idea of the wealth that he's going to be leaving behind. And able to afford this gigantic party for all these people. This ex-tax collector regards this change in his life as an occasion for rejoicing. From the world's perspective, they'd be like, you're crazy. You're leaving everything? But from Matthew's perspective, he's like, oh, this is the greatest day ever. Let's party. 
let's rejoice. For I was once lost, and I have now been found. And I find it so cool that when Levi is called to discipleship by Jesus, what's the first thing he does? He can't wait to tell his friends about it. I got to go let all my other tax collector buddies know about this. What better way to do that than to throw a party? So he throws this great feast, and he hopes that he can share this great thing that's happened in his life with all of his tax collector buddies. Remember, these are the lowest of the low in Israelite society. And it would have been real easy for Levi to have just kind of walked away from that old life. Sayonara, suckers. I got something better waiting for me, but he doesn't. He hosts this party for his friend's sake. It was the same way with Andrew, too, in the Gospel of John. We looked at that a couple of years ago. You remember? He meets Jesus. Jesus calls him. And the first thing Andrew does, John records, is find his brother Simon, who we know as Peter, and tells him, we found the Messiah. Come. Come and see. Levi knows that his needy friends could meet Jesus. They could hear the same thing he had heard, the same invitation, and just maybe, 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 they too would hear the call, the invitation to follow him. Notice, fruit is already being born. Fruit is already being born. I just want us to picture the scene. Here he is at his house, in his living room on this warm night. Picture it. Here's his new friends. Got Andrew and Peter and John and his old friends, all these tax collector guys, and they start engaging in conversation. Can't you just picture Levi over at the punch bowl, praying, begging God, please, please, please. Please let some spiritual conversations take place in my friend's life. Please connect the right people with the right people so that things can begin to happen in my body is just like it did for me. But as we see here, it's not all good news. The tax collectors and the other outcasts, they're not the only ones at this party. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and if this were a movie, this is where we'd get the ominous music, right? Dun, dun, dun. Who belong to their sect complain to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's my voice for them. party crashers. What are they doing here? Well, we got to understand meals in Jesus' day is a little different than what we would imagine it in our house today. Homes were much more open. Meals like this, feasts like this were much more of a public kind of an event. And so the Pharisees were there to observe this new guy on the scene. They Remember, they came last week in our text last week, and they're going to be with him the rest of his time because they want to know what this Jesus guy is up to. Last week, Brian did a great job introducing us to the Pharisees and these teachers of the law. As we learned, they are deadly serious about following the law of Moses, which had strict rules about purity, right? About objects and places and people and food. They were very legalistic and religious. And one of their chief ideas, if you don't get anything else about the Pharisees, I want you to get this. They believed in salvation by segregation. Salvation by segregation. What I mean by that is they thought it was necessary to keep themselves set apart from anybody else who could potentially contaminate them. So that was like sinners, right? We had to set ourselves apart from the sinners because they would make us unclean. We do this today, right? We, if you're making a soup, 
If you cut raw chicken on a cutting board, you don't cut vegetables on that same cutting board afterwards. If you do, that might be the most important thing you learned from this message this morning. Get a new cutting board. Why? Because you don't want to get E. coli or other things on those vegetables. So you replace the cutting board and you start over with a fresh cutting board. The same idea here with the Pharisees. They are thinking we need to separate ourselves from these low lives because we don't want to get contaminated. Now, Pharisees have gotten a pretty bad rap in church history, and for good reason. But to give them a little bit of break, they were interested in purity, which is a good thing. It's a thing we should still be interested in today. In their own words, they said things like this. We're interested in saving people from the ravages of paganism, which was running rampant in the Roman world. Purity is good. But unfortunately, in their desire for purity, they lost their concern and love for people. They stopped caring about people. Can religion ever do that to a person? That is the very essence of religion. Religion divides the world into good people and into bad people. And Levi is a classic example of bad people. The Pharisees, they're the rule keepers. They're the pure ones, so they're the good people. Now, before we roll our eyes at the Pharisees, can we just admit something? This tendency to divide people into categories is inside every single one of our hearts. We do it when we say things like this. Have you ever thought this? Don't lie. There are little sins and there are big sins. Really? There are good people who do little sins. And then there's the bad people who do the big sins. Or we say things like this, right? I'm generally a good person. To err is human. Everyone makes a mistake. However, that mistake... Or that person. Well, religion always divides people between good and bad, between little sins and big sins, and religion is in every one of our hearts. Would you believe me if I said even atheists are religious? They're like, oh, no, I don't. I don't. I'm not religious at all. Yeah, you are. Because we all divide people into categories. Proof. Think about the political season we're in right now, right? The only difference between liberals and conservatives is where they divide the world. There are good people and there are bad people. Who the bad people are just depends on where you are. Who the good people are also depends on where you are. And it was to confront this kind of categorizing, this kind of religion that Jesus came As we've talked about often here, Jesus comes to every one of us and says, I have nothing to say to you. Nothing. Unless you understand and you believe that you stand in the same place morally as even the worst of all sinners. This is why Paul would say, right? I am the worst of all sinners. It's why we can all say that here today. I am the worst of all sinners. Yes, even tax collectors. Jesus comes, though. And we've already seen it the last several weeks. Who does he associate with? Lepers. Paralytics. Outcasts. Sinners. He goes to dinner at a house full of tax collectors. (laughs) And this enraged the Pharisees. Because he should be hanging out with the good people. And they're the good people but he's hanging out with the bad people. 
And so they come to the disciples and ask him, what are you guys doing? And hearing them, Jesus responds with some of the most incredible words for every one of us in this room. This is what I might call Jesus' mission statement. Can we read verses 31 and 32 out loud together on our notes? It says, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why, does I, why do I eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's very simple. Because they know they're sick and need a cure. Those who think they're righteous, like the Pharisees in this story, they have no need for Jesus. We've got this all figured out. Thank you very much. It's those who are sick who need a doctor. That just makes sense, right? Doctors don't go around treating people who are healthy. They treat people who are sick. And people who are sick know they need a doctor. And so Jesus, that's why he's come. I've come for those people who recognize I am the worst of all sinners and I need a cure for this sickness. The first step of healing is always admitting where we really are, right? In any disease, think of your physical sicknesses. I got to know the cause or the reason that I'm sick. Some of you know I have a kidney disease. And I have all kinds of symptoms as a result of that kidney disease. And I treat the symptoms. But the bottom line is, friends, I realize that covering those symptoms is not ever going to get me anywhere. I mean, it'll help for a little time. What I really have to do is I got to deal with the root cause. I got to deal with the real issue at hand. And the same is true for our spiritual healing. The basic disease every human being has is sin, which leads to death. That's every one of our problems. All these other things that go on in our life, all the pain, all the heartache, all the suffering, those are symptoms of a much bigger cause in our life. And Jesus says, the only remedy to the cause is my message of salvation. Pharisees were blind to their religious sickness, their breaking of people into good and bad categories. They thought that their righteousness, by living a good life, that they were okay. But Jesus says, you're just dealing with symptoms. All that righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags to God. Why? Because you got to deal with the root issue first. And even the Pharisees wouldn't do that. They wouldn't admit it. They couldn't see it. Have you? Have you seen it? I think we all experience the symptoms of sin in our life today. But until we realize the root cause of that, that I am the cause of that, that I am a sinner in need of God's salvation, I will never see Jesus as the doctor who can offer me the cure. I won't come to him because I don't need him. Isn't it true when we recognize our need for him, that's when we're ready to come to him. And by grace, he's waiting for us. And by faith, we receive his gift of salvation that he offers us. I have come to call sinners to repentance. His invitation is just as real today as it was for Levi. As we close, I want to remind us why we're doing this whole series. I mean, that's a great story. But so what? So let's read this sentence once again to remind ourselves why we're doing this series. We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Okay? So how do we be like Jesus in this story? I think it's pretty simple. 
If you're following on your notes, the way of Jesus was to hang out with those who needed him. So how can I be like Jesus? Two plus two equals, I can be like Jesus when I hang out with people who need him. When I reach outside of these church's walls, outside of my circle of friends who've already gotten the cure, and start to hang out with people who know their need, who know they're sick, who know something's wrong, and we have the solution. If Jesus' mission was to call sinners to repentance, well, guess what? That becomes our mission as well. Because we are his disciples. By God's grace, this is our mission, not because of anything we've done, not because we're better than anybody, not because of anything you've earned. We just happen to have been given the cure to the ailment that every human being suffers from. If you had the cure for the Zika virus right now, would you keep that to yourself? Of course you wouldn't. You'd want everybody who had it to get the vaccine, to get cured. In the same way, we've been given the cure to the most important sickness of all. And to be like Jesus, that means we need to hang out with those people who need it, to get outside of our church's walls. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We're not ashamed because we know what he has done for us. Of course, there are people in our lives, in our communities, in our neighborhoods who don't think they're sick. In fact, they don't even want to hear about it. Okay. Don't worry about them for now. I guarantee you, though, there are also people who know. Who know something's missing in their lives. And Jesus says, why don't you go looking for them? Why don't you be willing to invite them into your life a little bit? Why don't you extend beyond the borders of the Cherry Hills Church home and invite others into your life? This is why I love this story so much. Levi just gets it. He just gets it, right? He doesn't leave his old life and forget about all of his old friends. He gets strategic. He figures out a way to invite his old friends to meet Jesus. He still has a heart for his lost friends. And I think we could learn a lot from his example here. He figured out a casual way to help people meet Jesus. All he did is he grabbed some of his church friends, and he grabbed some of his non-church friends, and he threw a party. I guarantee you he was nervous about it. I guarantee you had fear. I guarantee you had all the emotions we have whenever I start talking about these kinds of things, right? I guarantee you he's thinking, I sure hope Peter doesn't say something stupid. Don't you think he's thinking that? But he takes the risk. And I'm telling you, the way the good news of Jesus spreads in this world today is by ordinary people like Levi finding creative ways, strategic ways to introduce their friends to this person named Jesus. I can't help but think maybe we can do the same kind of thing Levi does here. Are we reaching out at all in our lives? Can we think of some people right now in our hearts that God has brought to mind in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, or whatever? Reaching outside of our church circle. What if you threw a party? Spring is coming, praise the Lord. Barbecues start flaring up. What about inviting some of your church friends and inviting some of your non-church friends? No hidden agenda. 
No, oh, I've got to figure out a way to get the four spiritual laws into this conversation, right? No, we're not talking about shame and guilt. We're actually just talking about really caring for people, really loving them, really hanging out for them. Not shame, not guilt, love. Love. And just seeing what happens. What if as a life group, and by the way, you're going to be discussing this week if you're in a life group, could you think of some creative ways you could maybe do this together as a group? So often we think of life groups as like, that's where I get more information about the Bible. No, it's not. That's part of it. But life groups are also where we learn to love the Lord, love one another, and guess what? Serve the world. What about getting strategic in your life group this week about, hey, how could we serve the world in this way? John Dixon, who's an author I really respect, a pastor I respect, he tells the story of the way he came to Christ was one of his junior high teachers inviting a bunch of squirrely 13-year-old boys to her home. At first, he's like, all right, what's the trick? What's the agenda here? Until he started realizing as the years went by, she just really loved me. And ultimately, that is what made him hear the call of Jesus and to follow him. There could be thousands of stories like that. Listen, Matthew has no specialized training, so let's get that one out of our minds too, right? He doesn't have the gift of evangelism, at least not like I know. That's what I always think. Well, I don't have that gift, so I'll leave that to other people. No, I think he's just an ordinary guy who took a risk because he cared for people outside of the church. I will be the first one to admit to you, this isn't my gift. It isn't. But God has strategically placed uh, our family right now in a situation where we're hanging out with lots of people because of our kids' sports that, honestly, I wouldn't normally hang out with. And at first, it was, like, really awkward because I'm like, I got to squeeze Jesus in this conversation. And I'm like, hey, soccer, and then Jesus. (laughs) But I've started to realize that's not what it's about at all. It's just about being normal. It's about having normal conversations. It's about actually caring for them. And as time has gone on, I've started to care for them and love them and enjoy hanging out with them. And every once in a while, guess what? There will be a conversation of meaning that takes place. And here's the good news. I don't have to force it because it is Jesus who calls a person to himself, not us. Listen, if we want to be like Jesus, we got to hang out with those who need him. So as we close, here's the question I'd like us to consider as we prepare for communion together. Who and how can I extend Jesus' invitation to follow him? Who and how can I extend Jesus' invitation to follow him? Let's spend just about a minute of reflection on that question right now. And if there's things coming to your mind, write them down. You got some ideas? You got some people? You got some groups? Write it down. But let's just pray about that together.
O Lord, you are our Lord, and we will ever praise you. How can we ever thank you for calling us into relationship with you? You are the treasure worth more than anything else in this life. As your church, we need to confess to you corporately that it's really easy for us to get apathetic on this issue, to lose our heart, to lose our concern for those who don't yet know you. So we confess that to you. We pray that you would give us a heart of Levi, a heart of Andrew, a heart of Jesus. Give us a heart that cares for people you've put in our neighborhoods and our workplaces in our kids' sports teams, in our gyms, wherever. Lord, I don't think you're wanting us to feel shame and guilt right now. And so we set that aside and we receive a spirit of boldness, a spirit of courage. Let us be people who extend the invitation that you've extended to us. And Lord, if there is anybody in this room this morning who for the very first time in their life have come to understand this is about following a person, not an idea, not a religion. Oh Lord, even right now, would you work in their heart? Would you help them to recognize and see that you are worth leaving everything for? And would they find new life in you? And as we prepare ourselves to take a different feast. While Levi had a feast, you have prepared another feast for us. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to remind ourselves both of what he has done for us in his body and his blood, but also what we have to look forward to. The day that we will all be gathered around, all the saints will gather around the wedding table of the Lamb when he comes for his church. And there will be a party. We can't wait for that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until you do, let us be the people you've called us to be. In his name, amen.